welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The lack of pure water was one of the several things that resulted in the development of wine as a source of potable liquid for human intake. Putting that aspect of human history in a time and place in relation to social and political events and the tracing of the different varietals of wine is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious. Our guest is Glenn McGordy, the wine growing and plant science advisor at the University of California Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources, located in the hills a few miles northeast of Hopland in rural Mendocino County, California. This locale has been called a university in our backyard by many of us who live nearby. Glenn McGordy's specialty is the history of wine and how so many varietals came to be and were further developed. When Glenn McGordy visited the studios of Radio Curious on October 18, 2016, we began our conversation with his considerations on the history of winemaking. We think that winemaking has been going on in an organized way for about at least 8,000 years based on archaeological evidence of, uh, of finding the remains of amphoras and, and the pips from uh, the seeds of Vitus vinifera. And archaeologists and the, the written records that we have start to, to pick up around probably uh, maybe 2000 B.C., somewhere around there. And it was pretty clear that they relied on wine as sort of a health food and also um, medicinal. They would make uh, herbal infusions. They would also use it for cleaning wounds. So it had a lot of antibiotic properties. And before we really understood water quality, it was it was pretty essential if you were uh, living in close spaces in Western Europe that you uh, drink wine if you wanted to stay alive because they wouldn't have had very clean water necessarily. If you think about an army traveling like Julius Caesar, he would give a ration of about two liters of wine per day for his troops, uh, and they would stop probably somewhere to pick up water, and the horses would be there, everybody would be there, and you'd you'd fill up whatever vessel you had, and then when they drank wine, they would dilute it with water, and that was a pretty common practice. Would the alcohol or the acidity of the wine kill off the pathogens in the water? Most likely, yeah. So uh, Enough for some of us to survive. Yeah, enough to survive. So, you know, their gut would have been a lot more tolerant of bacteria probably than we are today, just uh, because, you know, you can build a resistance to some of the, the bacteria and such that are, are found in the environment. But in addition to that, it was just a way of, of being sure that you wouldn't come down with something bad. You mentioned the archaeologists tracing amphoras and pips. Mm-hmm. What are they? Uh, amphoras are vessels that uh, they used to use for holding wine, and they were made out of clay, and they had two little handles on them. And I'm sure you've seen them. They're, they're kind of like pointed on one end, because when they transported them, uh, they would put them in boats uh, with sand on the bottom for ballast, and they'd stick them in the sand, and then they wouldn't roll around or fall anywhere and tie them together. And uh, they would usually hold somewhere between 10 to, to 20 gallons of wine. And that wine was uh, actually involved in commerce for a long, long time. So uh, a lot of wine growing took place probably in modern-day Lebanon and 
and uh, uh, as far away maybe as Armenia, and it was transported around by the Phoenicians, uh, who were, their home base was Lebanon, and they traveled up and down the Euphrates River and, and into Egypt and, and around through Spain, so they really were sailors of the Mediterranean, and that was one of the principal things of commerce that they sold. So are you indicating that the development of wine as a drink for humans was in that part of the, um, the Middle East? Absolutely. We think of probably the, the real culture of wine started in modern-day Georgia uh, in, in near the Black Sea. And, uh, you know, by the time that, that the pharaohs were there, they actually had branding and they had appellations and they would stamp them on the amphora. So uh, labeling wine is nothing new. It goes back a long, long time. And obviously there were some places considered better than others. Uh, and it was always uh, sort of the high-class drink. So probably most Egyptians, the workers, drank beer, but the um, Egyptian royalty were able to afford to buy wine from other countries and import it in uh, because they couldn't really grow high-quality wine where they were because the climate was too hot. So then mentioning beer, wine was not the only uh, way of developing a fluid for us to drink in those years. Correct. So the other alcoholic beverages would have been grain-based and beer would have been what they, they drank. It would probably wouldn't be, I don't think they had hops in it, but I think that was a Northern European invention. But certainly they fermented uh, grain and, and drank it. So staying with wine, and you mentioned Julius Caesar providing two liters uh, per soldier of wine, that's a lot of weight to carry around. It is. but How did they do that? Well, they, they loaded it up on, on uh, wagons and took it with them, and they had to have a supply chain. And they, when they met the, uh, uh, the northern Europeans, uh, uh, the, the Celts in particular at that time lived in France, they introduced them to barrels. And it was kind of a happy trade. The Celts didn't know very much about wine, and the Romans didn't know much about barrels, so they kind of, you know, cultural uh, melding there. And, and that's when uh, the wine barrels more or less became involved in winemaking. Before that time, almost everything was based in clay vessels. What difference did it make uh, using a wine barrel versus a clay vessel? Uh, wine barrels are more durable, and uh, they also imparted a different flavor on the wine. So uh, they they were um, also a little bit more portable. You could move them around easier when they were empty. And uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know a lot. There's not a really huge archaeological record of how that affected things uh, because, of course, wood doesn't preserve itself very well, and we don't really have a lot of you know evidence in the archaeological record of when this might have occurred, but we know certainly by the time that the the Romans were colonizing the the north of Europe that wine barrels were being used because uh, they already had the technology for making them. And before we move on to uh, the varietals, you mentioned pips earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pips are the seeds. That's another name that they, they call them. Uh, uh, and the French word for, for seed is pepin, and uh, pip is something that they sometimes refer to in archaeological archaeologists do for for the the, uh, the seeds of grapes. So in developing the varietals, the different kinds of wine, um, how did that occur? Well, that's a really interesting story. So uh, wine, the Vitus sylvestris, which is the parent of Vitus vinifera, uh, actually has male and female plants. And uh, at first, 
Vineyards would have been planted with, uh, when they first figured out how to take cuttings and root them, they probably would have had some male plants, and then they had female plants, and they needed them for pollination. Uh, then they just started discovering some wine grape varieties that uh, were what we call monoecious, which means that they, they had both male and female parts on the same vine. And then they started selecting those, and they took out the males. So at first, probably they were just all sort of uh, wild and random selections that people made from certain patches that they collected from. But as they gradually developed agriculture, they started making selections. There's all, no doubt that probably by uh, 1100 or 1200 that people were breeding, maybe even sooner than that, that they had figured out how to breed uh, wine grapes. But uh, And interestingly, it was probably the Cistercian monks in France that gave us a lot of our varieties that we grow today, like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Uh, but they didn't talk much about it because everything was so easy to get sort of crossways with the church in terms of being declared a heretic if you were messing with nature. But certainly we were breeding animals at that time, so it's almost a certainty that that, uh, wine grapes are bred, even though we don't really consciously talk about it, don't really see it in the scientific records until uh, about the 19th century uh, when the scourge of phylloxera or the, the root aphid that attacks grapevines and destroys their roots, then it became necessary to, to try to hybridize with American grapes, which were resistant with the European grapes. So in the 1900s, when the varietals uh, blossomed, mm-hmm. what, what was the course? How did it uh, develop? Well, it developed when they had this plague of phylloxera that, that came through, and it was introduced accidentally from the United States because plant collection was very popular, and, and uh, our native grapes here have an insect called phylloxera, uh, that their root systems are resistant, but their foliage gets uh, these galls from the insect. And they were collected and brought back to Europe, and we think it got loose in England and kind of made its way to the continent, and it was devastating. It destroyed most of the vineyards of Europe because the Vitus vinifera was was not resistant. What is the Vitus vinifera? Vitus vinifera is kind of our a commercial grape that we use today. It's an offspring of, of Vitus sylvestris, but it's been selected. They're very closely related. They're not that far apart, but uh, Vitus vinifera is our commercial wine grape and table grape. Uh, of what um, varietal? Uh, it could be any variety. So it's uh, it's it's kind of like Prunus armenica is a apricot, so Vitus vinifera is wine grapes and and almost i'd say 99 percent of the wine grapes that we grow uh in california are vitus vinifera there are also some american hybrids that we use in the wine industry in other parts of the united states where they've crossed them with our native grapes but uh by and large our wine grape industry is really based on a european model here in california where we use pretty much the the vines that they do in europe so using those vines um, most of which uh, are Vitus sinifera, mm-hmm. right? Uh, how is it that the different kinds of grapes that result in different flavors or types of wine have evolved or been uh, created? Well, that's a really interesting question. We don't know the complete answer to, but we know that there's there is several different groups of of wine grapes. Uh, the and they are, they're kind of indicated in part by the morphology of the plant. So we know that there was a group that came out of that. Uh, Transcaucus area of, of Georgia and Armenia. And we know another group uh, came from Mesopotamia, which is where most of our table grapes are. And then they were probably back-crossed with uh, some native 
vines that were found in the uh, you know areas that were sort of around the edge of the glaciers uh, from the ice age because the ice age probably killed off a lot of, uh, of vitus or vitus sylvestris that couldn't tolerate the cold. Wine grapes as a group can't really tolerate cold. And they were backcrossed by people, uh, either naturally or accidentally, we don't know which, uh, and also consciously. So we think today that there's about probably close to six different groups of, of wine grapes that we refer to as pearls, P-R-O-L-E. And, uh, you know, we're just now starting to un- unravel this with uh, genomics, where we're able to really take a look at the chromosomes that are in the plants and get a sense of where they probably came from. Interestingly, the area of most diversity is Italy. Italy has an amazing diversity of grapevines where there may be, you know, six distinct groups of, of grapevines, and we find hybrids of all of these in, in Italy. Before we discuss why Italy for such a wide diversity of different kinds of wines, I want to say that we're visiting with Glenn McGordy, who is the Wine Growing and Plant Science Advisor at the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources in the Mendocino County Ag Center. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Glenn, why is um, Italy unique in the varietals, as opposed to other parts of the world? Well, uh, several reasons. First of all, it's kind of a cultural crossroads. So there are a lot of different uh, political and, and uh, cultural exchanges that went on there over the years. They were occupied by the French. They were occupied by the Normans in different places. They were occupied by uh, North Africans. They were occupied by the Greeks. And everybody kind of brought things with them. As in uh, wine. As in wine. But also the vines? Also the vines. Uh, certainly we know the Greeks brought things there. Uh, and the Italians already had, uh, of course, at that that time it wasn't Italy. It was a, a series of little duchies and independent city-states of about at least 70. Um, and they already had their own native uh, vines and such. But they, they're really volume wine drinkers because, as I told you, to stay alive you had to drink wine. So they... Uh, they had a lot of indigenous and uh, grapes, and then they also made a lot of acquisitions from other places. And so wine was everywhere. And even today, there's 350 different uh, varieties that are authorized for winemaking and under the Italian uh, appellation system, you know, of, of labeling a wine for an area. So they, they have a huge diversity compared to other countries. Well, 350 might be... Uh uh, a large number to distinguish, but perhaps uh, you could share with us what the different climactic regions have to do with how the grape tastes and thus how the wine tastes. Well, that's a really good question because it really, I think, has impacted the kind of variety selection that, that goes on. So Italy uh, has a climate that goes from the Mediterranean Sea to the Alps, and, and you can't grow grapes in all regions because some places are high elevation and too cold. So what we see is that uh, in areas that tend to have short growing seasons, the varieties come out early and ripen early, and uh, they would like to, to plant things uh, in a warm spot in the cool region. That's what they'd usually look for, and often those were, were hillsides. Hillsides were always valued uh, in Italian viticulture, and they had the term Bacchus Amat Cale, which is Latin for uh, Bacchus, the, who is the god of wine, loves hills, because that's usually where they put their vineyards. It always had the right kind of soils, which 
would give the plant uh, somewhat of a controlled vigor, so it would balance itself out and put on just the right amount of fruit to ripen. And it would be up a little bit higher because cold air settles and the low areas would tend to freeze, but if you're up higher, it's warmer. And uh, we, we see that in most of the wine-growing regions of northern Italy, they look for hillsides. As we get further south, they would be inclined just to look for soils that weren't so rich. Uh, because the rich soils they would have used to grow grain, so they would tend to put them on uh, places where the soils were less fertile. So in doing that, in the selection of the places where the soils were less fertile and in warmer areas, um, at what point did trial and error um, change into um, something that could be researched by a potential wine grape grower? Well, that's a really good question. The other thing that, that takes place is that when it comes to genetics of plant material, the wine industry is one of the most conservative on the planet, and, and pretty quickly uh, people found uh, varieties that they thought were right for their region, and they tended to sort of codify it, uh, starting from around as early as the 12th century, as to what you were supposed to grow. So, uh, in other words, if you're in Burgundy, you grew Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. That was more or less required by law, uh, particularly under the more modern Appalachian systems. And in in southern Italy, they also had a group of varieties, for instance, that they knew were were right. And there they tended to select varieties that budded out later and ripened later because when they were making wine, uh, if if it came out too early, it had a greater propensity for turning into vinegar instead of fermenting into wine because... Wine is basically controlled spoilage. You know, the end point is starting point sugary uh, juice, and the end point is vinegar. And what we want to do as winemakers is interrupt it at the right place uh, so that we, we have alcohol. That's an intermediate substance. And we stop any other fermentations that would turn it into vinegar from such as a bacteria acidobacter. So, so these are some of the things that we were trying to do uh, uh, during controlled uh the control process of making wine. So the cooler it is, the easier it is to control things. So that's why the southern uh, Italians with the long growing season would have started later and wanted to finish later so that it was cool by the time that they were making wine and it was less likely to spoil. You mentioned that the wine industry is one of the most conservative on the planet. When you say conservative, what do you mean in in that? uh... I mean conservative in plant genetics. Uh, so if you think of, if we think about something like the stone fruit industry, they like changing varieties about every five to 10 years. And we have active breeding programs that bring out new stone fruits, new peaches and nectarines, and the whole industry will graft everything over or plant new orchards. And, and, you know, we, even in my lifetime, we've probably been through five number one varieties, uh, that have changed. Uh, when I started, Suncrest was, was big. Oh, Henry came next and I lost track of who's in which one's in first place now. But uh, in the wine grape industry, we're working with varieties that were bred a long time ago. So the Cabernet Sauvignon has probably been with us uh, for at least six or 700 years, maybe longer. And that's still considered to be the premier variety. So uh, you, you don't see an active breeding program trying to introduce new new varieties. Um, and it's been interesting, too. The, the wine grape industry is really kind of eschewed uh, GMOs. They're really not interested in them, even for yeast. They're very concerned about, first of all, since they export, they don't want to get into a situation of having some ingredient in the wine that wouldn't be acceptable to the marketplace. And uh, they, while genomics are still important for like rootstock breeding, where uh, it's being used to assist traditional breeding. So they find genetic markers for desirable traits 
and they can screen the seedlings rapidly, but there we're not really the wine industry doesn't appear to be very interested in having GMO type plants or even yeast or anything else associated with with uh, uh, the winemaking process. We're not going to have Roundup ready grapevines anytime soon. <laughs> So let's change our focus here for a minute and talk okay. about our local area mm-hmm. and the kinds of varietals there are uh, here in uh, central Mendocino County, inland from the sea by about 28 miles, mm-hmm. uh, very hot in the summer, and um, maybe it snows here once every five years. Mm-hmm. Well, this is sort of a classic Mediterranean climate. Uh, you know, you, if, we, if we take our latitude and follow it around to the Mediterranean, we'd end up in Sicily and Athens. We're about 39 degrees latitude. So we'd be southern uh, Mediterranean area in terms of location and and kind of a warm climate that we would find uh, in Apulia or Sicily or or, uh, Calabria. And uh, the difference is here is that we were blessed with uh, warm days and cool nights, and that's so it, it does get rather warm in the afternoon, but usually by evening, by sunset, it cools off. This is really good for, for wine quality because what happens is that the plant kind of slows down and stops. Uh, really, physiologically, it's, it's kind of holding its own, but it's not really actively respiring uh, or like it would in a warmer climate at night. So we retain really good acidity. So you get this nice balance of sugar and acidity, and that acidity gives kind of a brightness to the wine and to the fruit so that when you taste it, it's very kind of uh, refreshing, even though you've got... Uh, you know, some alcohol and tannins and other things in it. So the quality of our the wine from our region is very distinctive. And I really noticed the difference even tasting from other regions here in Northern California that we always have a very bright sort of uh, uh, flavor to the fruit in, in our wines. Well, acknowledging that um, everybody is most proud of what we know about and mm-hmm. in the region in which we live, how would you compare the wines of Mendocino County with other Mediterranean areas uh, in the United States? Uh, well, it's it's the best, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we all have a local palate. It's really clear. I belong to a tasting group where we have professional uh, winemakers, and we, we always tend to gravitate towards the local wines. We, we do develop kind of a regional palate. So, uh, and I've had the same experience in Italy where I've tried to talk to them about varieties from other areas, and they're like, well, I've never had those. Why would I drink those? I've got so many good wines right here that I'm not interested in what they, if I'm in Piemonte, I don't care what they do in Sicily. And we're not quite that bad here, uh, but I, we, we definitely have a, a, a local palate. So like uh, my family also has property in Paso Robles area, and I go down to Paso Robles to taste wine, and it tastes very different to me than it does here because their climate is uh, a, a little bit drier and, and in the summer a little bit hotter, and the wines definitely have a different flavor than they do from Mendocino. Turning towards people who are not familiar with wine, mm-hmm. uh, going to a restaurant or looking in a uh, wine section of a store, what would you recommend as a way to begin enjoying the breadth of different kinds of wines? Well, that's really hard, you know, because uh, you can't tell very much from a label. You can't tell very much from price. I mean, that's part of the the good and the bad of, of wine is that it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, so, you know, usually I recommend people start with, with probably uh, white wine is a good way to kind of get introduced and because it's, it's not doesn't have a lot of tannins. Tannins can sometimes taste kind of bitter to us. So 
a lot of people start with whites, like you know, fairly simple whites like Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc, uh, or even maybe something a little bit of sweetness, because we usually respond better to sweetness at first when we're first learning how to drink wine. So, uh, you know, a Riesling or a Gewurztraminer that's not real expensive and I highly recommend uh, forming a little wine group, uh, even if you don't have any experts in it, but especially if you have somebody who knows something, uh, get together and taste once a month and try things. And that's kind of how you learn. But in the end, don't agonize about it. Just enjoy it. You know, I mean, it's uh, your taste is your taste and you shouldn't have to rely on somebody else to tell you what's good. You, you need to kind of determine that for yourself. Participating in a wine tasting that you conducted a few days ago, you paired foods with certain wines. Mm -hmm. The one that stands out is the difference, uh, I, I don't remember the wine, but the difference in eating an almond with the wine and a walnut with the wine. Mm -hmm. What is behind this taste difference? It, it has to do with the tannins that's in the wine. The, the tannins are, are natural compounds that uh, are, are there to kind of protect the, the plant from uh, infection, from diseases and such. They're phenolic compounds. And this is part of the, the reason why we think red wine is healthy for you because some of these uh, materials also uh, probably protect us as well. So resveratrol is one associated with red wine that's supposed to be good for your heart. So when you have a wine that has a fair amount of tannins and you have uh, walnuts which have a fair amount of tannins, they complement each other. Whereas if you have a wine that's low in tannins, such as we had the Italian variety Arnaise, which is very delicate and uh, doesn't have a lot of tannins, when you eat a, a walnut with that, it doesn't taste very good. Whereas you taste an almond, and it's complementary because almonds are much lower in tannins, a little bit higher in, in, uh, in uh, fat, and uh, that's, that tastes good. Well, Glenn McGordy, this is fascinating. Um, and I thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask a few questions about you. Okay. And the first one is, uh, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that changed your life or your view of the world? Yes. When I was three and a half years old, I planted my first crop uh, in a vegetable garden. It was some radishes. And four weeks later, I was able to eat them. And I thank my mom for introducing me to gardening. And that changed my life. I became very interested in plants from that point forward. And it became your profession. Yes. And what would you like to do with the remainder of your one precious life? I haven't decided yet. <laughs> I probably will continue in some, some kind of, uh, of agriculture as long as I can. So I've been thinking about uh, planting uh, some diverse plants for selling at the farmer's market. I have a small walnut orchard that I'm developing right now, and I've been thinking about planting some pomegranates commercially and maybe some table grapes and selling them locally at the farmer's market because nobody's doing that on a regular basis. And finally, Glenn McGordy, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yes. Uh, I read the book Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier. And uh, Charles Frazier has an amazing command of the English language, and it's just a joy to, to read what he writes. Glenn McGordy, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. Glenn McGordy is the Wine Growing and Plant Science Advisor at the University of California, Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources, located in the hills a few miles northeast of Hopland in rural Mendocino County, California. He specializes, among other things, 
on the history of wine and how so many varietals came to be and were further developed. The book that Glenn McGordy recommends is Cold Mountain by Charles Fraser. This program was recorded on October 18th, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. You may stream, download, subscribe to our podcast service, and share them as you wish. They're all free. We appreciate your thoughts, ideas, and comments about our programs and enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. And the address is 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.